Welcome to Jabber. Today's episode, as you can see, is entitled Shoe Battle. And I would like to talk a little bit about two companies that have been at each other for a long time. It's really almost impossible to imagine how the sneaker industry has begun to generate such revenue. In the year 2015, it was estimated that the sneaker industry would generate $60 billion per year. It is also estimated that by this year, which is 2020, that sales would be $220 billion, which is actually more than the total GDP of a small nation like Ukraine. That is not including the additional billion dollars which is made in selling or trading vintage traded sneakers. Why do sneakers sell so much? Well, sneakers appeal to so many different cultures and subcultures, culture of music, sports, high fashion, There's all kinds of demographics, age groups, all the way from kids, teens, young couples, even seasoned citizens are interested in sneakers. The first sneakers that were ever sold were much almost like a boat shoe. They were called plimsolls, and they were the first to have rubber soles. Next came along Keds and then Converse, the all-star Converse that were the canvas that so many people wore, actually now owned by Nike. Then there was Reebok pumps and the list could go on and on. The sneaker industry is huge. Nike alone has 60,000 employees, over 650 designers. And Nike, the company, has a market cap of $100 billion. Yes, that is billion with a B. It is the most successful apparel company in the world. It was founded by a man by the name of Phil Knight and Bill Bowerman. And yet, at the same time, while Nike seems to be progressing towards a monopoly in so many ways, there is another company that I would like to talk about, and that is the German company, Adidas. Adidas is considerably smaller in many areas. Uh, It only has about 200 designers. It's founded by two brothers, Rudy and Adolf, or Audi Dassler. These two companies would go head to head and February of 2015 Adidas would have about 5% of the market share and Nike would have 60% of the market share here in the US. But I'd like to explore their beginnings for just 
a few moments. The year is August 19 and 21. And Adolf has just returned from the Great War, World War I. In doing so, he recognized that he did not want to be a baker for the rest of his life. And so him and his younger brother, Rudy, launched a company called Dassler Brothers. They launched it from their mother's laundry room. Their dad, who uh, had been involved in stitching, he taught them the necessary stitches to make shoes. And so they began doing their best to put together a new type of shoe. They were trying to find quality materials, but quality materials were extremely hard to come by after World War I. And so they began to look for old discarded war surplus, including parachutes, helmets, and anything they could find with leather. And then to cut up the leather, Adolf used his ingenious ideas. He decided to build a stationary bicycle. He attached knives to this bicycle and in the place of the tires and wheels. And this stationary bicycle he would pedal and those knives were used to cut the leather into small strips. They would cut these strips and they would make their soles out of the small strips that he used to cut up with a bicycle. With a little bit of time, he lands the contract for the German national soccer team. That brings us to the year of August 1936. place is Berlin. The event is the Olympics. Adi and his brother Rudy had done quite well for themselves and they finally decided they were ready to take the next venture move into a new arena. They wanted to become kings of the shoes. And so at the Olympics in August of 1936 held in their very own Germany they went and Audie began to search his way through the American athlete camp. There in Germany, he found the man he was looking for. It was the coach of a man named Jesse Owens. Jesse Owens was the best sprinter in the world. And it is very ironic that this German company would supply the shoes for the black athlete, Jesse Owens. Jesse Owens that year would win four gold medals. He was a black American trouncing the German Aryans on their own home turf in front of their, their own leader, Adolf Hitler. And that black American was doing all of it in a pair Gassler sneakers. The great uh, war had ended, but a new war took its place. War, 
World War II came. 1939, at the start of the war, these two brothers, Adi and Rudy, began clashing. In the year 1942, factories, uh, their factories for making shoes had been turned into rocket plants. And in 1945, a new dispute began. You see, by this time, Adi had married a young woman. They were clashing over his marriage with this young woman. And Adi became accused of turning in his brother as a foreign Nazi intelligence officer. And because of this wrongful finger pointing, these two brothers would never reconcile. The war ends and their shoe factories began to return, but yet they continued to fight. The year 1947, Rudy finally decides to leave to start his own sneaker company, which he would call Puma. Adi would continue with the work of Dassler Brothers Shoes, but instead of calling it Dassler Brothers Shoes, he decided to change it to a mix of his first name and his last name. He called it Adidas, or in America, we know it as Adidas. The employees uh, that had worked for the two brothers were allowed to choose. And so the choices were made. Rudy had always been the sales side. And so those that had been involved in sales, many of them chose to follow Rudy to Puma. The design and craftsmanship side had always been Adi or Adolf. And so many that had been involved in the design or in the craftsmanship stuck with Adi at Adidas. These two brothers would build the two or two of the largest sneaker companies in the world. Sadly enough, as already stated, these two brothers would never reconcile. The brothers are both buried in the same cemetery, but their plots are on opposite ends. In November of 1962, while all of Adidas and Puma were taking off for the world, in Kobe, Japan, there was a man on a train by the name of Phil Knight. Phil Knight was there and he was marketing his idea to bring the Oniska Tigers, which was a popular Japanese sneaker, over from Japan to the United States. He had sat in his hotel room and rehearsed his speech and thought of the ideas that he would present in the boardroom the following day. And so when he walks into the boardroom with his prepared speech, he had forgot to think of which company that he was with. And of course, that would be the first question they would ask. Mr. Knight, which company 
do you represent? And in that hallowed hall, he sits there trying to come up with an answer. He didn't have a company. So he quickly states or makes up Blue Ribbon Sports. And they seem to like it. And after much negotiation, he was able to get this group of investors or the Oniska Tigers sneakers to decide to begin allowing him to distribute them in the United States. However, in good faith, they asked him for $50 for a sample kit. It was $50 he didn't have. So he quickly ran out of the room, called his father, and begged his father to wire the money over to the Oniska Tigers corporate offices. And in that moment, Phil Knight would become the lone distributor for the sneakers from Japan. In that moment, he would link up with his former track coach, Bill Bowerman. And after a lot of hard work and a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, they would sell their sneakers. The first year, they sold 1,300 pairs. It grossed about $8,000. But by the second year, they had more than doubled, grossing close to 20000 In the year 1971, they realized that instead of distributing Oniska Tiger sneakers, why not sell their own? So, in the year 1971, they founded the company Nike. Focus of this company would be solely on track and field, which was a genre, if you would, that Phil Knight and Bill Bowerman had both been a part of many years before. They began, and there again, with grit and sweat and tears, they began to sell. And sell, they did. In 1973, they had already raked in an astonishing $29 million in revenue. And in one decade, by 1983, they had already produced a whopping revenue of $850 million. It was at this point that Adidas and Nike went head to head. We don't have time to talk about all of the different uh, rivalries that they had. One of the major things that Nike did that Adidas didn't was land Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan had actually wore Adidas shoes in high school. And he wore Converse in college. But when he went to the pros, he chose Nike. Nike offered him two Mercedes Benz and $500,000 for five years. Every year a $500,000 check would come in and those Air Jordans would take Nike to the next level. In 1987, 
the marketing budget for Nike alone was $50 million. Adidas and Nike have been cutthroat. They have went after each other's business. They have done everything they can to gain the inside track in sneakers, apparel, with athletes, with musicians, with singers, and the list could go on and on and on. They have been battling for shoes. But yet, I would like to take a little jaunt today down a different road. I would like to take us to a different era. More than a hundred years ago, The Compiler was a small, well-published newspaper. Often its front page news was days old, yet for a provincial journal in Civil War times, it reported the nation's events remarkably rapidly. In reading the issue of June 29, 1863, you can learn a great deal about that era of time. Quote, the prospects of the Democratic Party were never brighter than at this moment. End of quote. At least that's what the article said. However, keep in mind that Abraham Lincoln was a Republican and he was in office as president. Some of the advertisements are also extremely fascinating. One such advertisement by the Tyson brothers exclaims, quote, Eureka, Eureka, the Excelsior washer is acknowledged by all who see it as the most complete and the most perfect labor-saving machine ever to be invented, end of quote. Its price? A whopping $8. Another ad, this one placed by R.F. McElhinney uh, store, advertises boots and shoes comprising of men's Belmore boots, calf boots, brogues, and other boots that were all available. Know that it was this advertisement for which I would like to speak. It was this advertisement for boots that attracted the attention of three Confederate generals, Ambrose Hill, Henry Heth, and John Stone Pettigrew. Hill was in charge of the entire Third Corps of the Confederate Army. Heth and Pettigrew were two division generals serving under him. The reason that that newspaper advertisement drew their attention was that much of the Third Corps, after many long months of fighting, was now marching barefoot. They desperately needed footwear. Well, now they knew where to find it. Heth told Pettigrew to muster his brigade and head towards the town where the newspaper was published and get those shoes. The town was eight miles away. Pettigrew and his men, which was about 2,400 infantry, started out for the town on the hot, humid morning of the 30th. And they returned late that afternoon empty-handed. Where was the footgear? General Heth wanted to know. General Pettigrew related the rest of the facts of the day. That on the outskirts of the town, he had seen a small group of Union cavalry. No infantry, although 
With no cavalry of his own to perform reconnaissance, Pettigrew knew, or could only guess, should I say, and imagine the strength of the Union Army. He would not gamble with the lives of his troops, and that's why he had returned empty-handed. Sixteen sizzling, suffocating miles of barefoot marching. Marching for nothing. So, General Heth and Pettigrew met with the commander of the Third Corps, General Hill. Hill told them, relax. Both he and General Lee were confident that the only Yankees in the vicinity of the town was a small detachment of reconnaissance cavalry, which Pettigrew had already observed, and could have easily wiped them out and returned with the much-needed shoes. Well, immediately Heth spoke up. Might he have his own permission? to lead his division of soldiers over to that shoe store and relieve the proprietor of his stock. General Hill readily granted permission. The next morning, July 1st, General Heth was on his way. It was a complete accident, you see. Nobody neither the Rebs or the Yanks anticipated or intended the carnage that would follow. The Confederates, so preoccupied with the advertising of the small town newspaper, had, a re had really miscalculated the size and tenacity of the Union Cavalry, as well as the proximity of the First Corps of the Union Army and the Eleventh Corps. But so began the footwear war. And it was a spontaneous, horrendous three days of Holocaust. And all the Confederates had wanted was just a pair of boots at Gettysburg. You heard it at Jabber. Please subscribe wherever you are listening. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a five-star review. That helps us so very much. Also, if you'd like to reach out to the show, you can reach us by emailing jabberpodcast at gmail.com. That is J-A-B-R podcast at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Thanks again for listening.